0: How's everybody doing? Awesome. So, did you all have a good evening last night? Good. So did I. But it was a little strange. I was working on my message for this morning and one of our goats was delivering babies (laughs) with the help of my wife and my daughter. So I'm working on this message and I hear, well, screaming, right? Who can concentrate at that point? So I go, and I'm just watching this delivery, and well, she delivers the largest baby that we've ever had on our farm. They average between three and four pounds for this breed of goat, and this one was over seven pounds. So I'm just watching this, and I'm cringing, and I'm like, come on, you can do this. I need to go for a walk. Oh, come on. It was intense, and well, my message is a bit convoluted. You'll understand why. You may be wondering why we started with a movie clip with no introduction. Some of you knew immediately what that scene was and what movie it came from, but for some of us, maybe it made no sense. You see, my friends, we're part of a much larger story God's story, and there are parts of it that don't make sense to us unless we understand the context, right? In the matrix, people are living in a world that is both seen and unseen. A lucky few have escaped the matrix, and they're living in freedom, trying to free others, but they live in constant fear and threat of the agents tracking them down and killing them. Those living in the matrix are completely oblivious to this unseen world. Their bodies are actually in suspended animation and they're being used as batteries to power this entire facade. In this scene that we just watched, a man named Cipher, the agent called him another name, but his friends call him Cipher, who's currently free, agrees to betray his own people because he's tired of running. He's tired of fighting the agents, nine years. He just wants to be given amnesty, or in this case, amnesia, and live a successful life in the matrix. Ignorance is bliss, he says. He knows the stake isn't real, but he doesn't care anymore. He's ready to sell his soul for whatever earthly pleasures he can obtain From the devil, I mean, from Agent Smith, who says, So we have a deal, right? Today, we'll be looking at a passage from Ephesians. We've been in the worthy walk, right? We're towards the end of the book now, chapter six, halfway through. This passage in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that we live in a world that is both seen and unseen where forces of darkness are hell-bent on stealing, killing, and destroying God's workmanship, those who bear his image and his testimony, you and I. And he tells us how to fight against these agents of the devil with armor forged by God himself. But before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. God, we recognize that you are the authority, you are the power over all authorities and over all power. We recognize, God, that you love us. You love us intently and intensely. You love us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross, to have victory over death. And God, we, we cling to that. And God, we pray that you would open our eyes today to a world maybe that some of us are familiar with and some of us are not familiar with. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you want us to to see and to know as a result of today and to learn how to fight the enemy and recognize his schemes that sometimes are so subtle. And God, help us to recognize that those weapons are not of our own making, but they've been literally forged by you, God. And you, um, through Paul here, tell us that we need to take that up, that full armor, and we need to use it against the schemes of the enemy. Help us to understand how to do that in our own lives, as well as uh, in the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the ushers have already come down with Bibles. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so just join me here as we take a look at our passage. Book of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about the whole armor of God today, starting in verse 10. Reading through 13. Paul says, finally... That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Who is the devil? We're told in this passage that we have to stand against the schemes of the devil, but who is the devil? My friends, I'm sure we have a lot of different understandings of that and the world has a lot of misconceptions about who the devil is or who our enemy is and we're gonna look at that today. But we need to go back. Remember, we need to have the context. So we need to understand the larger story. And so we're gonna take a look at another passage, Revelations 12. Starting in verse seven through 11, interestingly enough, apocalyptic literature, which this is a part of, often gives us a look back and a look forward. And sometimes it can be confusing. But I think um, God really wants us to understand the context and he wants us to understand who the enemy is, and so he makes it pretty clear in this passage and where it all started. Many, many years ago, starting in verse seven. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers, that is who the enemy is. Now we're going to fast forward to the Garden of Eden, chapter 3. I don't have time to go through uh, this whole story, but we all know the story, right? Adam and Eve are enjoying sweet fellowship and friendship with one another and with God, and everything is right, everything is perfect. Not quite, not quite, because there's a serpent lurking in the garden waiting for the perfect opportunity to to add its voice to the story, and this is where our story takes a tragic turn. Who is this serpent? We just read about him, Satan our very ancient adversary. He's called the morning star. So is Jesus, interestingly enough, the star of the morning. One who is beautiful. He's cunning. He's powerful. But he was an angel who wanted glory for himself and he challenged God's authority. And there was war in heaven. This is in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, if you're interested in reading more about that. And he was hurled down with a third of the angels, but he was not destroyed, my friends. And here he was, waiting patiently for that moment of weakness where he whispers to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, he, he was actually talking about the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if we eat of that, we will die. You will not surely die. This is the deceiver, my friends. He's convincing her, you're not going to die. I mean, what what could possibly be wrong with just taking a little bite, right? And so they took it, and they ate it, and it tasted good, and paradise was lost. And in the aftermath... They're afraid, they cover themselves, they hide. Adam blamed Eve, then he blamed God for giving her to him and she blamed the serpent and we've been blaming everyone else ever since, right? Blame, shame, fear, betrayal, it's all unleashed right now, right here in the garden. And these relationships between humanity and God between the first husband and wife, and between us and our understanding of our true identity, they were all broken. And we've been dealing with a fallout ever since. Is it any wonder that Paul spends five and a half chapters giving us a roadmap for understanding, maintaining and restoring some of these same relationships? Right? We've been through this in the last, the past few weeks, right? He spends chapters one through three reminding the church in Ephesus how through our faith in Christ, the relationship between us and God is restored. And how the shame and fear we've lived with since Genesis three pales in light of Paul's exhortation of God's great love for us, his immeasurable grace for us and his kindness for us, right? And how this new family we're being adopted to Are adopted into, is for Jew and Gentile alike. In chapters four through five, Paul talks about how to live into these restored relationships, how to walk in love, how to live as husbands and wives and as families, and even how to live in the slave-master relationship, which is very culturally relevant at this time in the Roman world in particular. And then Paul warns us. He warns us, in the passage we just read and beyond, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That our enemy isn't the Jew, it isn't the Gentile, it isn't our fellow believers who might cause us angst or grief or anger, it's not our spouse, it's not our ex for that matter. Our real enemy is the devil who went off to wage war on those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ, Revelations 12. That's you and me, my friends. Who is still present and is still relentlessly working to what? To steal, kill, and destroy, John 10. The beauty and intimacy of these relationships that were broken all the way back in Genesis 3. And yet, my friends, please, if, you've, if you hear any part of my message, hear this. We have something that Adam and Eve did not have. We have the new covenant. We have the risen savior, his finished work on the cross. We celebrated that last week with Easter, right? We have the shed blood of the lamb, his victory over sin and death. All power and authority on heaven and earth have been given to him, the commander of angel armies, the firstborn of all creation, the son of the most high God, the one who makes the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the blind see. That's who we have, my friends. And Paul tells us to put on spiritual armor not made by human hands and to resist the enemy and to stand firm. Why? so that we can fight for and have victory in all those relationships he describes in his letter to the Ephesians. So what are some of the schemes that Paul mentions? He says there's schemes of the devil, right? What are some of those schemes or strategies that the devil has that we experience today, some of us not even realizing it maybe. First one is real simple. I'm not here, right? I'm not here. Many of our scientists have convinced us, particularly in the Western world, that only what is seen and explainable is real. Our existence is nothing extraordinary, right? In light of the systems that govern our universe, And the supernatural is mythical and unsubstantiated, right? The enemy has gained an advantage in convincing us that we're too smart to need a God. His strategy is to operate undercover, right? Incognito. I'm not here. Go about your business. And the whole time he's convincing the church that he's no threat while he undermines our faith. He destroys our marriages. He turns believers against one another. And he convinces us that those negative words and thoughts that we've had about ourselves and our own self image and self talk are just us speaking. My friends, he is the father of lies. John 8 44. So that was scheme number one. I'm going to talk about three, there's many more. I'm not here. Second one is fear. Fear is one of the enemy's most common methods of intimidation. Okay, so if he he can't just, you know, be about his business, doing what he does, and unrecognized and and unseen, he's got to throw intimidation in there. And so this is his next scheme, right? His next step, if you will. The first one didn't work. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, Be alert. And of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Interesting. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How many of you have heard a lion or a tiger roar? Yeah, where was it at? Probably the zoo, <laughs> right? Maybe you were on safari, okay, but you still had some metal, right? Some, something in between you and that lion, right? Can you imagine just you're walking through this really tall grass and a lion roars and he's really close. What do you think that would do? Hair in the back of your head, whoop, right? Wow, okay, causes fear, Right? The enemy causes fear. It's part of his intimidation strategy. Interestingly enough, and this is the beauty of this, my friends, this is just the introduction that I'm giving you to all of this. in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about every single piece of armor, every single weapon that we have that Paul lists after this. And one of them in Ephesians 6:16, 6, is to take up the shield of faith. And interestingly enough, he just says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. So the shield of faith is part of the weapons that God has created to help us resist the enemy. I just wanted to point that out. Paul mentions rulers, right? In the rest of the passage we read, he mentions authorities, powers of darkness, evil forces. Daniel's praying in Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel Chapter 10, verse 13, Daniel is praying, but his prayers are thwarted by three weeks by what's called the Prince of Persia. It's a territorial evil spirit. Interesting. And Jesus and the disciples they met many demonic spirits throughout the Gospels. You can read about those stories. Fascinating. So they're everywhere. They're 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 present. We can't just ignore them, right? I want to share with you a, a personal story about something that happened to me. Uh, we used to live just down the road here on Highland Road, <clears throat> and uh, I remember going to a, a, a men's conference. It was a week long. It was phenomenal. I was just yeah. I was on cloud nine. I came back. I. I felt like you know God had done some tremendous work in my life and, um, and I decided to, to pray. Um, my wife and kids had gone to bed and so I was out in the living room and I just kneeled down uh, by the chair that I had been sitting on and I, and I prayed and felt like I had some, some really sweet fellowship with the Lord and then I stood up and you guys, when I stood up, this presence just pressed in on me and it felt, the way I can describe this is it felt like ice cold water started filling the room, the living room. And so it started with my feet and then it was up to my waist and then it was my chest and, and my neck. And if you've ever been in really cold, cold cold water, it's really hard to breathe. And that's exactly how I felt. And I was in an empty room. But there was the presence of fear that literally was palpable And so I spoke to it directly. I called it by name. And I said, you have no authority here. Why? Because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, Matthew 28, 18. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, which is the name above all names, Philippians 2, 9, I command you to leave this house by Jesus's finished work on the cross, John 19, 30, and by the power of his cross and resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 22, and by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony, Revelations 12 that we just read, you must leave now. I didn't give all those references, I gave those to you so you knew why I was saying what I was saying, right? But it was the word of God, my friends, and I said it, And I felt just a little bit of a hesitation, and then I said those things again, and I started moving forward. And I felt this release, this this dissipation, if you will. I felt like someone had just pulled a big plug out of our living room, and all that ice water just drained out into the street. And he left. The spirit of fear, it's very powerful. And I know we've probably all faced uh, that spirit at some point. And what have we done with it? We have the power through God's word to command it to leave, and it must go. Why? Because Jesus is the name above all names. And if you remember just reading through the gospels, in the name of Jesus, the disciples cast out demon after demon after demon after demon. So I'm not here to, okay, you recognize me, fear, intimidation, boom, if that doesn't work, okay, all right, all right, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? I hope not. It's not a good thing. Remember the matrix, right? Cypher knows the stake's fake, but he doesn't care anymore. He's tired of running. So he makes a deal with the devil. I don't want to remember anything. Ignorance is bliss. My friends, ignorance is not bliss. You never want to make a deal with the devil because you will lose every time. The odds will never be in your favor, Katniss Everdeen. Never. Never. And if you recall, Judas made a deal to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he couldn't live with that decision. Sometimes the deal is obvious, Luke 4, 1 through 13, again, I don't have time to turn here with you, but this is where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the desert, right? And the enemy comes to him several times and says, first he appeals to his hunger, then he appeals to his identity as the son of God and even to his dominion over kingdoms of the world and all Jesus needs to do is worship him. Right? Let's make a deal. And Jesus says, no deal. And he directly quotes scripture in rebuttal to every single one of those things. Ephesians 6, 17, again, we're gonna talk about this in the weeks to come. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and if you think about it, back in those days, how did kingdoms rise and fall? Not with smart bombs, not with you know, whatever missiles you can come up with right now. No, it was the sword, right, because the sword was the most powerful weapon, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But sometimes those deals are much more subtle. My friends, these are the ones you have to look out for because they're not at all obvious. Matthew 16, 21 through 23, Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, and chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What in the world's going on here? I thought Peter was talking to him. My friends, Peter is being manipulated at this point, right? His heart seems so sincere and caring for Jesus' well-being, right? And it is, his heart. But Jesus could see with spiritual eyes. He saw how Satan was manipulating Peter, and he could see that subtle offer of the enemy, which was basically, you don't have to take that hard road maybe there's another way out of this. Can you imagine? If he had gone down that road, God's plan of salvation could have been compromised. But Jesus said, no deal. I'm gonna warn you and myself. If we decide to stand up to the enemy and begin to push against those strongholds in our lives, whatever they are, We will face intimidation. That is a promise. Don't go there. It's going to be too scary to admit your sin and seek help. You could lose everything. If people knew what you were hiding, they'd reject you. Fear is a powerful motivator for action and inaction, isn't it? And the enemy uses it all the time. Or the enemy will try to make a deal with you. Hey, you could cheat on your taxes, and then you'd have more money to pay your bills, right? Or uh, maybe if you're not entirely honest with your boss about your productivity, you'll get that promotion. And then you can take your your wife on that vacation she's always wanted. You're going to do it for her. How selfless, right? And we compromise our integrity, and we make a deal with the devil, and Ephesians four twenty seven says, "Don't give Satan a foothold in our lives, because once he's got his foot in that door, he'll just keep on moving in, and you don't want that to happen." So, last point: What should our response be? We aren't meant to do this alone, my friends. We are not meant to do this alone. Find people who can fight with you and for you. Let them in on what you're dealing with because we're all dealing with something. James 4, seven through eight says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We always jump to the resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yes, yes, that's true. But where does that passage start? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then after resisting the enemy, draw near to God. See that? Submit to God, draw near to God. My friends, again, we can't do it in our own power. Many of us have tried and failed, right? Many of us have made deals with the devil, and now what? Now we're on a road we should have never been on to start with. What do we do now? We cannot fight with our own weapons. That's why God gives us weapons that he forged himself. And we're gonna be looking at that in the weeks to come. And in those weeks to come, we need to learn to recognize those strategies of the enemy and how we can use those pieces of God's armor to defend ourselves. So finally, Jesus' victory on the cross that we celebrated last Sunday my friends hear me now. It is complete. It is finished. He has won the war. But the battle still rage against his image bearers. But take heart because God's given you. He's given you those needed weapons and that armor that you'll need. Reminded again by Paul in 2 Corinthians 10:3 through 6. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We submit to God first. And he works through that. To defeat the enemy. We're going to wrap up here with a couple questions, um, some next steps, if you will. Just want us to ponder these for a moment. What are some of the ways that the enemy has asked you to compromise in your life, in your marriage, your job, your integrity? And maybe it's super subtle. Maybe you have to think about this for a bit, or maybe it's really obvious. What are some of those ways? What has he offered in return? Because there's always something, right? And then finally, what would it look like for you to resist the enemy and to stand firm? And it's different for each one of us because we all face different battles, right? The worship team is up here now. Um, They're going to lead us in one more song. You guys, we say this every week, but we're going to have people down here to pray with you afterwards. If you feel like you're under something or dealing with something or you're not sure about what's going on, but you know something needs to be prayed over, prayed about, you just need someone to be um, with you, come on up. We're going to be here afterwards. Thank you.